0: Yeah. Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the
1: All Weather Fan.
0: My name is Sam
1: Dingman, and this is Alan Smith.
0: Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans, hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? It is good to see you out there in Radio Land. It is fantastic. It's been a little while since we came to you in this uh, this customary form. I just want to say right off the top, there's not going to be any uh, weird. Oh, it seems like they're doing a real episode. Whoops, curveball at the end, and we're just telling you about some ill-advised live show or anything like that. You are getting the whole nine yards of Baltimore glory this week. (laughs) And that's it. There's only nine. (laughs) Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 98 of Baltimore the show that, if we're being honest, has ventured into some weird territory of late. We know it's been frustrating and maybe even off-putting for some of you, and, well, we have something we'd like to say. You know, I want to apologize. I
1: want to apologize to the Orioles organization and, um, and our fans also. We've
0: got a fantastic show on tap for you folks. In just a few minutes, we'll chat with sports writer Ted Berg, who recently published a piece on USA Today entitled, Manny Machado Should Be Suspended or Demoted to Protect Him from Himself. The piece was published shortly after Manny's much-discussed bat-throwing incident during the last homestand against Oakland, and we'll chat with Ted about the implications of the sky-high expectations with which we saddle our young ballplayers. We'll also bring you the latest installment of our trademark seventh-inning sketch segment, and tonight's episode features another edition of the wildly popular Baltimoreans Culture Corner, wherein we tell you all about the latest baseball-themed literary publications. Last time we told you about can't-miss books like The Bridges of Madison-Bumgarner County and J.T. Snow Falling on Cedars. And we've got three more amazing selections to share with you this week. We would urge you to play along at home, Baltimoreans.
1: See if you can guess the title of the book before we reveal it at the end of each episode.
0: Some would say that doing that is the only value of listening <laughs> to the segment in its entirety. I wouldn't say that, but some would say that. <laughs> and those are the people we apologize to at, right. at the top of the show. Right. Of course, no episode of Baltimoreans would be complete without our most popular recurring segment, the Taylor Teagarden franchise report. As you're all painfully aware, the Orioles officially lost all-star catcher Matt Wieters for the remainder of the season this week. And I don't know about you, morons, but it got me thinking about some of my favorite backstops of recent vintage. Few things bring a bigger curl of delight to my lips than fondly recalling the antics of Greg Zahn and Mickey Tettleton. Really? <laughs> but if anything does... It's substituting Taylor Teagarden's name into pop song lyrics. So the next time you feel like being blasphemous in front of your Oriole fan friends, try telling them "Fie on Cal Ripken. Taylor's the real Iron Man. Taylor Teagarden Taylor, 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 Taylor Teagarden The next time you're out on the town, shaking your hips with that unmistakable Baltimorean joie de vivre, consider adding a little TT to your timber. It's going down, Taylor Tea Garden, you better move, you better dance. Or if you're like me, and sometimes you feel like the world is a bit too much with you, If you sometimes feel overwhelmed by the desire to escape somewhere, a bit more serene, perhaps you'd care to hop into my submarine. I'd like to be under the sea in a tailor-tea garden neath the waves. That's about all I got. Over to you, Smith. <laughs> well, it's hard to figure out how to follow that,
1: Baltimoreans, but we're going to try. Because we are well into the summer here in Baltimoreans Nation, with the Orioles pinging and ponging around 500, unwilling or unable to commit to a true team identity. And we ping and pong along with them, as Sam and I have unfortunately fallen to one and one when we call Orioles games. We'd like to do better, but to be honest, we haven't quite gotten our play-by-play and color commentary synced so that we're performing regularly at a high level, and our puns with runners in scoring position hasn't really been consistently where we need it to be to get a real distance between us and the rest of the Twitter universe. Is it because we're in a rut? Is it because we've done 97 episodes of the same style of intro? Do we need to consider, perhaps, the podcasting equivalent of dropping Manny to 7th in the order? Well, the context that I'm here to provide, Baltimoreans, is simple. We've got to shake things up. We need to make a change, something that celebrates not the uniqueness of the episode 98, but the history and the legacy of an organization. We need to get back to our roots by looking at this day in history, because what can the storied history of June the 17th tell us about the Orioles' inconsistency? Well, on this day in 1930... President Herbert Hoover signed the Smoot-Hawley tariff into law. The Smoot-Hawley, or as it is colloquially known, the Hawley-Smoot, is widely regarded as one of the best of the American Tariff Acts. In a unique form of policy creation, it was based on two men, William Dudley Smoot and Harrison Harry Hawley, who engaged in an epic game of darts that lasted for nearly seven days without breaks for sleep or food. When the two exhausted men finally succumbed to the realities of physical exertion, The scores of the nearly 160 hours of darting were totaled up and the points each man had accrued were used to set the effective tax ratios on nearly 20,000 products that were commonly imported by the United States of America, setting the effective tariff rate that was only ended with the advent of the Second World War. Unfortunately, this tells us literally nothing about how to break out of our struggles for club or podcast. So let's look a little bit deeper. On this day in history, June 17th, 1631, Mamtaz Mahal died during childbirth. Her husband dealt with his grief in a perfectly rational and understandable way, essentially how I'd imagine I would deal with the sort of sadness that comes from losing someone important to me, by building the jewel of Muslim art in India and one of the universally admired masterpieces of the modern world to commemorate her life and act as a mausoleum. It took him the next 17 years, but Emperor Shah Jahan would eventually create the Taj Mahal, not only an artistic masterpiece and world heritage site, but also, if viewed from above, looks remarkably like the floor plan of the seventh castle in Zelda. This amazing work of art is a testament to inspiration and to love and to Akomentos, the boss of the level seven dungeon in Zelda, episode one. Is this then, Baltimoreans, the context that we can draw for this episode? On the very day that our captain, Matty Backstops, went under the knife, can we draw the same sort of inspiration and glory that will allow us to build something so amazing as a team that someone will one day pen about the 2014 season? The sight of this mansion creates sorrowing sighs, and the sun and the moon shed tears from their eyes. In this world, this edifice has been made to display thereby the creator's glory. I think we can.
0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Taylor Tea Garden Franchise Report, where each week we take the three most relevant news items from Birdland and beyond and assess them an objective quality score. Item number one on this week's report. We've referred
1: to it already in this show, but Matthew Wieters has gone under the knife today to repair a tendon in his throwing arm. That's a wrap for 2014. Sam, how do I feel about this?
0: Uh, The way you feel is, have you ever been walking down the street in kind of the um, hyper-commercialized part of an urban area, and you're walking along and you see a street magician and the Street Magician is playing, uh, I believe it's usually referred to as the Shell Game. Um, right, and it has various right. names where they take a pea, uh, or small round object, and then they have three cups or three shells, and they put the pea under a cup or a shell, and they move them around, and you're supposed to follow it with your eyes. And then you could swear you know which cup or shell it's under, but then they lift up their hand, and that's not where it is. It's, it's somewhere else. This is the Shell Game. Because there's a lot of people who are pointing to the fact that entering play tonight, the Orioles' record without Matt Wieters was 15-20. and There's a lot of people who are saying he's the only one who really knew how to manage the pitching staff. There's a lot of people who are saying his bat was really finally starting to come around and we're not going to be able to recover from the loss of this. I hear all that. But you're looking at the wrong shell. Mm. Let's recap for a second. Entering play tonight, the Orioles had how many quality starts in a row? Was it eight? And Chris Davis has underperformed severely. Manny Machado has underperformed severely. (laughs) Nelson Cruz, who was carrying the entire team on his back for a while, has come back to earth a little bit. Um, J.J. Hardy, massively underperforming. J.J. Hardy, it's going for too easy an answer to decide that what's going on here is that we've lost our captain this team has enough positive things going for it that it ought to be able to get everybody on the same page matt if he was in the lineup should be a garnish on top of all that but he was never going to do it all himself and i think it's important for us to all remind ourselves of that okay okay
1: i'm going to give this uh an it goes way high in the air and then drops through the strike zone for the inevitable called strike 3 <laughs> because clearly this guy's been hurt for a while and I don't know what the hell we were doing trying to play it out every time you go to see Dr. Andrews we know from previous episodes of Baltimoreans you don't come back from that <laughs> there's no recovering from going and see Dr. Andrews and any lies about no he just needs to like get on a throwing routine and get back i actually think that to your point, it's been more distracting and a more of a problem for this team than it needed to be because we could have all just gotten over it and gotten back to playing baseball, and instead we've been waiting for Matt Wieders to come back and be a savior in the lineup, and he's not coming.
0: Item number two on this week's Taylor Teagarden franchise report. Right now, Buck doesn't want to call it this, but we have a six-man pitching rotation, and in that pitching rotation... We have, I think anybody would agree, six very capable starting pitchers, but no aces. The guy who pitches himself out of the starting rotation is going to be the first to go. And knowing Buck, I don't think it's going to matter if that guy is Ubaldo Jimenez, who's making $12 million a year, or Miguel Gonzalez, who's not making much more than the league minimum. Smith, what do you think about the six-man rotation? I'm going to give this
1: a extended trip to the mound to go just check in with the starting pitcher and everyone from the infield comes in and everyone knows what's happening which is you're giving the other uh, the reliever a little bit more time to get loose before you pull the starting pitcher i think it's smart baseball here's why chris tillman on extended rest is a full one and a half points of e- of earned run average lower than he is on regular rest I know Miguel Gonzalez pitches much better on extended rest. A lot of these guys actually get significantly better on rest, and if we're willing to go through this whole ridiculous bailing wire and duct tape pitching routine for another year, let's go ahead and play to our strengths, which is a bunch, as you just said, a bunch of third and fourth level starters who, if they get a little bit of extra rest, can get that extra couple miles per hour on their fastball, get something right in their control, get a little bit more
0: going. I'm going to give this the first drop of rain <laughs> in the top of the sixth inning. When the game is already official, Uh-oh. so a rain delay wouldn't end it, and you don't know if it's just going to be a passing shower or if it's going to be the end of the ball game for the afternoon. Okay. The reason I say that is because in addition to, you mentioned that Player X is going to visit Dr. James Andrews is essentially <laughs> akin to, is over athletically, it's a death sentence. Yep. Uh, I think similarly, there are certain procedural decisions about how you're going to manage your ball club that tend to be a death knell for a team season. One of them is when they say, we're going with a closer by committee. Another one is, we're going to go with a six-man rotation for a little (laughs) while and see what happens. It never works. And the teams that win the division year in and year out, you never hear... Of them going to closer by committee or going to a six-man rotation or any of these other uh, silly sideshow routines that are basically just a way of masking a lack of sufficient talent to win enough games.
1: But, Sam, we have a lack of sufficient talent to win enough games.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But this is why I say it's just that first drop of rain. Okay. Because I think any competent talent evaluator who looks at Kevin Gosman knows that he's somebody who can contribute at a very high level in a major league rotation this is a consensus opinion the same is true of Dylan Bundy who is obviously still a month or two away from joining the rotation but it seems likely is going to be able to work his way back sometime this year sure if you take those two guys and you add them to the chorus of solid but unspectacular pitchers the pitching is going to be competent enough to get us by that is unless we're about to have a thunderstorm of suck item
1: number 3 on this week's franchise report go
0: The lungs on this man, ladies and gentlemen.
1: (laughs) The United States, after uh, scoring an early goal to take a 1-0 lead against Ghana, played almost the entire game, conceded the tying goal in the 82nd minute, and then rallied back to take the crucial three points against Ghana in, in the 87th minute off of a rookie, fifth career international appearance. Wasn't even supposed to be in the game. Came off the bench, scored a uh, miraculous header off of a corner kick to give the United States the win. Sam, how should I feel about this this fairy tale story that's unfolding over there in Brazil?
0: <laughs> uh, well, you know um, when you're in college and you start dating this girl and or this guy, And he or she has a little bit of a wild streak Mm -hmm. that you really like. And you don't perceive so much of that in yourself, but um, it's kind of bringing you out of your shell and it's a little scary, but you really feel like you're, you're going through some personal growth, but then it's the last night of senior year. And he or she says, you know what we're going to do is we are going to take off all of our clothes and we are going to run in the nude through the town and we're going to get arrested and it doesn't matter because life is for living and we only get to do this once. And you look at this guy or this girl and you say to yourself, no, no, that's not me. (laughs) You know this moment. That is what I'm going to give the World Cup experience. Because I know that it's not who I am. And that has been an important thing for me to realize because I think in the past I've tried to drum up false enthusiasm about not just the World Cup, Smith, but about other things Ah. that I felt some kind of peer pressure to do. And part of the process I'm going through at this point in my life is to not do that anymore, to not do things that aren't me. But critically, and this is important to appreciate what it is about other people that draws them to that. And I think for me, the World Cup is a real test of that. And it's making me think about why I am that obsessed with baseball. I have a very deep personal connection with baseball because it's been a part of my life since I was a little kid. As we've talked about a lot of times on this program, it was the first thing I could ever really talk to my dad about. And that made me feel like he was treating me Like an equal and not just as a son and somebody who didn't really know enough to have a conversation Mm. and then I played baseball and it was a huge part of having an identity that wasn't just quiet confused kid in the corner who really likes the saxophone and it was the first thing I ever did that made it seem realistic to dream about having success at a very high level. For a little while, baseball made me feel like there was some kind of continuum between me and Cal Ripken that existed. And it wasn't like he lived in a different world than I did. And that connection with baseball is never going to go away for me. It makes it so that the idea of being separate from it hurts and feels like something fundamental about me has been corrupted. And I don't have that with soccer. Mm. And nothing I don't think is ever really going to give it to me Not even a World Cup where the US is doing incredibly well and people who I love and care about, like you and Jennifer, are so invested in it because you do have this very deep personal connection with it. And it's making me realize that what I need to do this time around with the World Cup is rather just to say, what can I learn from you about this game that I know so little about but is internationally one of the most relevant points of commonality for all of humanity teach me I want to know more about it it doesn't have to become who I am Mm. but this is an opportunity to to appreciate something that I can see is as important to others as baseball is to me
1: well I'm going to give this a two out bottom of the ninth uh Jonathan scope grand slam to come back from down three and win the game uh mostly because it was incredibly needed for the US to become relevant in a group where they were otherwise going to be out in the first you know in in the first round essentially but for me the moment of the world cup has become the equivalent everyday for a month of that moment when you're wearing an Orioles cap on the streets of New York and you see someone else with an Orioles cap and you have that moment of recognition because something that happens during the world cup that I think is unlike any other sporting event ever, uh, any event ever. In some ways, is that the entire world agrees to anesthetize themselves from all of the bullshit and the horrible things that are happening around the globe, and just ignore ignore that because we are all enjoying sport. Literally, if I see any flag. Over the next month, (laughs) I feel like I have a connection with that person because they are sporting their Australia gear or they are out there repping Honduras. For a moment, I get to be on a team with everybody else because not only am I on the team with everyone who's an American, I'm also watching on a team with everyone who cares about the World Cup. And it's suddenly this glorious sporting event that gets me swept up in the commonality that I share with everybody who's watching
0: I think it is it's like it is to the world what we pretend baseball is to America.
1: Yeah, or what baseball has been for us in New York. Yeah. I, I, I don't I don't need I don't need to throw the word pretend in there. I think it's real. I just think that, that for whatever reason, for this particular time period, soccer is able to unite so many people under a commonality banner that even Grinches like Jake English Still feel a little, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit of something, a little bit of love in their hearts, a little bit when uh, the U.S. manages to come back from from uh, oh, a game they probably should have won and actually seal the win. <laughs> love you, Jake.
0: <laughs> Much love, Jinglish. Do people call you Jinglish? I'm going to do it. Should I'm going to do it until you tell me to stop. I'm going to do it. All right, folks. Well, that'll do it for the Taylor Tea Garden franchise report. Well, let's jump on the phone now with Mr. Ted Berg. We're going to talk to him about his provocative article about Manny Machado's bat-throwing incident. He recently wrote it for USA Today, and he joins us in just a moment, right here on Baltimore Ons. <music> Ladies and gentlemen, we are on the line with USA Today sports writer Ted Berg. Ted recently wrote an article for USA Today uh, suggesting that Manny Machado should be suspended and maybe sent down to the minor leagues to save him from himself. Ted, uh, you realize you're not doing a lot to save yourself from yourself by appearing on a program of ill repute such as this.
2: Uh, I realize it, (laughs) but I'm willing to take my chances.
0: (laughs) The The words of a confident man. Uh, Well, the thing that I found most striking about your piece in USA Today um, was that you did something that I feel like a lot of sports writers uh, and a lot of fans don't really do, which is that you drew a kind of direct connection between your own maturity level at Manny Machado's age and Manny Machado's maturity level. And it was fairly thought-provoking because I think as much as we as baseball fans like to uh, aspire to identify with the best Of our on-field role models, we don't really often pause and take a good hard look at the parts of them that might not have gotten a chance to be fully formed by virtue of trying to forge a professional athletic career. Is that something you did consciously?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, if people followed me the way we follow professional athletes... I would get booed on the streets of New York City. I, I mean, it's, it, we hold these guys, like you said, we hold them to a high standard, and part of that is is the paycheck, and, and, and they realize it comes with the territory when they sign up uh, to have, you know, what is probably the coolest job in the world, and be a Major League Baseball player, but... Manny Machado's a kid, right? I, and yeah. I know, you know, we, we trust people younger than 21, 22 to fight wars and to, to vote and, and you know, all these important civic responsibilities, but college age kids do really stupid things all the time. <laughs> and I mean, and that's the truth. And and I said in the article, I did, I was the dumbest of college kids, you know, and, and, like totally irresponsible, reckless, dangerous, just idiotic, and, and uh, you know, I don't know if any of those words are fair to use for Machado, but, but you know, when he's throwing the bat and, and when he's uh, smiling after hitting the guy, Derek Norris, with the overswing, uh, I know it's easy to see a bad guy. And, and I just don't think – I don't think it's fair to call any 22-year-old a bad guy because I think they're too busy being formed as a human person. <laughs> you know, you're sure. not there yet.
0: So, I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me about watching the trajectory of Manny Machado is – is that last year, in his first full season in the Major Leagues, he was the best defender on planet Earth. Um, he, for most of the season, was carrying a batting average over 320. He almost set the single-season record for doubles. And then, of of great interest, I think, he was featured on the ESPYs. He became sort of the Orioles' first real celebrity in a long time. And even more than Chris Davis, who was having this historic power season people were very, very quick to kind of lump in Machado with this whole Mike Trout, Bryce Harper, youth movement of the future storyline, um, and he even got engaged during the offseason. And I think for a lot of Orioles fans, we totally jumped. We jumped to this idea that, as you say, this guy is fully formed and it's going to be nothing but up from here. Why do you think it is that we're so quick to do that? with baseball players and maybe just professional athletes what what is that process do you think for people uh yeah
2: you know, i think it's excitement right it's just being a fan and and uh, we all you know every fan overrates his own team's prospects uh, you know you you talk about uh, if you you guys propose a trade on twitter involving uh you know be like hey hey would you trade uh uh i don't know andrew heaney the guy the marlins just pulled up for for chris davis and every Marlins fantasy, no, no, he's going to be the best. This guy's right. going to be the best. You know, and and uh, and no matter what team it is, every team thinks their young players are going to be the best young players. So when you get one that comes up and is the best player, you know, and Machado sure. was so good, uh, I think it's really easy to get ahead of yourself and to forget, uh, you know first of all it's a long season yeah. um and and you know and that's and that's true and that things even out and it's true in that opposing pitchers major league pitchers are really really good right so they're going to make adjustments and and i believe machado is young enough and talented enough that that he'll make that adjustment back but i think you started to see towards the end of last year you know him struggling a little bit whether that's fatigue whether that's guys figuring him out a little bit it's something that happens right and and not every guy Uh, Not every guy is Mike Trout, uh, who's just the best immediately. (laughs) The fact Um, that he has not had any sophomore dip at all is just so terrifying. He had the first couple weeks of May, and people are like, oh, maybe Mike Trout's regressing. And then since then, now he's hitting like 500 or something.
0: (laughs) Also, uh, I do want to say quickly to any Marlins fans listening, you are welcome to 2014, Chris Davis, for Andrew (laughs) Haney. That is fine. Yeah. I guess that was a bad example, but, but you know what I'm saying.
1: <laughs> no, but the point – yeah, the point is absolutely taken. So I, I wonder, do you think this is a, a, a worse in baseball? Because I'm trying to think of, like, young, uh, hyper-talented kind of fuck-ups in other sports and how long their leash might be. And my sense is that baseball has more of a unwritten rules of the game. And we're harder on Yasiel Puig than we are on um, – I'm going to pull a soccer reference because the World Cup, Mario Balotelli. You know, people people who screw up more off the field um, in other sports or or don't play the game the right way on the field. Do you think it's worse in baseball, or or or, or am I just uh, am I making no. a mountain on a molehill there?
2: No, I think you're right. I think there's something to that. It's a very strange thing, and it's a it's a very sort of difficult thing to define. Uh, but it seems like baseball is so rooted in nostalgia and this idea of you know the national pastime and 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 it's a sport where I think we're more apt probably because of the pervasiveness of stats more more than anything really we we we're, we're so eager to compare guys to the ones who came before and, and we can so easily we can say oh you know here's Puig's first month uh it's the best since Joe DiMaggio and then yeah. and people say oh no Joe DiMaggio I saw him play he was the best you know there's no way <laughs> this guy is going to be anywhere you know and and it's it's fun you know and I think it's a it's a big part of of what makes the sport fun but I do think uh, it's so rooted in that history, probably right. more than any other sport, and 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 maybe because it's been popular for so much longer than any other sport, sure. uh, that it it has that history, and 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 so I think you know we're drawn to assume that uh, whoever, whatever era we grew up watching was the best era, and and those players were were the best, you know, those were the the most uh, you know virtuous players that ever lived, <laughs> and and. Uh,
0: well, and it's really interesting what you say about our us not being able to have an objectivity about a guy's talent level, uh, because I think we're in an era of more advanced statistical analysis um, than any previous era. And I mean, I guess that's obvious in some ways, but it's so prevalent now, the degree to which we're trying to... Um, Uh, get this this real objective way of evaluating skill levels and yet and I uh, subscribe to a certain amount of that myself and yet I have caught myself recently when I uh, you know on MLB TV between innings they show highlights and they have this one that's running where side by side they show uh, somebody hit a long fly ball to right field with a runner on second base Bo Jackson catches it in the deepest part of the right field corner, takes one step and throws on the fly to third base and gets the runner who was trying to tag from second base. And then side by side with that, they show Yasiel Puig making a similar play except that, Yasiel Puig picks off a runner at first base. And my first thought is, see, Puig had the the easier throw to make. He's not as good as Bo Jackson was. (laughs) But that's because when I was a kid, Bo Jackson was the most unbelievable thing that anyone could imagine. And I think by any objective talent evaluation... Puig is already a better player than Bo Jackson ever was. Has already. Yeah, but don't,
1: a, I, I don't think he's a better athlete, though. Bo also I wouldn't, played yeah, football. Yeah, I was going to say I wouldn't. I wouldn't sell Bo Jackson <laughs> yeah. short. Yeah, because he, he to was me a that's generational athlete. I mean, that's one of those things
2: that as you get older, it, it only seems crazier. When I was seven, eight years old, you're like, oh yeah, sure, Bo Jackson. He's the guy who plays two sports.
0: That guy played two sports. <laughs> that's two nuts. sports. That's insane. All right, all right. Fair enough. Uh, I, but
2: but you know, but what you're saying is alright, Yeah, Puig is a, is a better baseball player than than Bo. Jackson was and and you know maybe has as good an arm I, I obviously Jackson's arm is the type of thing that's uh, sort of Paul Bunyan over time you know when, <laughs> when made right. that play the other day every said, "Well, was, was it as good as Bo Jackson
0: I mean that's the interesting thing is for me it was that first experience of saying the guy who I remember being the best is better than the guy who is now considered the best oh and yeah and it's that, always gonna happen and that part of the game is never gonna w- go away I think no matter how advanced the statistics become Um, But I wanted to jump now to, uh, you know, we've been talking about the unwritten rules of baseball, in part because of the Tim Kirkjian article about where he listed out some of uh, the most famous (laughs) unwritten rules. He actually wrote the unwritten rules of baseball. Um, Now they're they're, no good. we got to go get some more. And now (laughs) they're (laughs) written. I wonder, uh, do you have a favorite unwritten rule of baseball?
2: I'm kind of partial to the one that, that just because of how silly it played out, with uh, with Dallas Braden and A Rod, with with A yeah. Rod running <laughs> over the mound, like that was a thing, and and I guess to some extent that is a thing. Um, but uh, just how how Braden sort of freaked out, I, I don't know. He sort of reminded me of Happy Gilmore in the whole thing. Like the, <laughs> he sort of freaked out, like like just such a violent reaction. And then two weeks later, he throws a perfect game. Yeah, and right. his grandma, his grandma comes out and is like, "What do you think about that, A Rod?" <laughs> it's like <laughs> fantastic. I don't know. It, yeah, it was so that was that was a favorite. I also, in terms of, I guess, in terms of uh, unwritten rules that I don't understand, uh, the the distaste for sign stealing uh, when yeah. every team tries to do, everybody tries to do it, and then any any time you suspect someone else is doing it, you're like, oh, that guy's stealing signs, and it's this this horrible thing. It's all well, you're doing it yourself, you know, and <laughs> and if you're not trying. you're you're probably a fool, you know? I thought
1: that was interesting how that uh, when Pineda got caught with the very obvious gunk on his neck, how, like... Everyone was like, "Well, everybody does do that.
0: Everyone knows that everyone does that, right?" Yeah, it's yeah, almost I mean, like a, the unwritten rule is don't get caught doing one of those things. <laughs> right.
2: Well, I made the point when when that happened. It's like if if you think about uh, again to use a college reference, if you think about your RA, right? Like most RAs, <laughs> they know a freshman in college is gonna is gonna have a few beers. But if you walk past your RA's room with a case of beer, exactly, then the
1: RA's guy he's got to maintain he that has respect. To do something. You know, you
2: got to do something about it at some point.
1: So then it, if if we're talking about specifically um Manny and his uh future as a uh, hopefully a star in the league do you think that uh as a as a 22 year old yourself you would have taken um a demotion or a um suspension in the right light cuz i think about myself and sort of uh myself at that age and i'm not even totally positive that i would have had the wherewithal to Take the demotion as the head clearing, get my shit together moment that it, it could have been.
2: No, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think I probably would have thrown a hissy fit and, yep. and whined <laughs> and and cried in the this corner of the dugout. And you, but I think you know that's where uh, leadership comes in and guidance and mm-hmm. and someone yep. in the organization or someone in his family or someone somewhere. I, I mean, it's not you don't get to the majors without some sort of support system, and and I'm sure there's someone who could sit him down and say, look. And even if it's not a, you know, another like you can find a, a phantom DL stint, you know, like, hey, go yep. hang out in Sarasota for a couple weeks. Right. And, you know, go see your family in Miami and maybe just chill out. You know, like yep. just 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 let's we're not going to make a big deal out of this. Let's just chill out for a little while. Yeah. Sure. Um, but and and it comes from, you know, and I, I don't know the dynamics of the Orioles organization, who, who that person is for Machado. But uh, I think that you know, that is important in developing, you know, we, we think of it as such a, uh, uh, and again, because of the stats, we sort of see it as an automatic, you know, that guys you come in at 21, they're going to get better in this certain way. But there are people, you know, behind that, making those guys get better and, and pushing them to get better. And, and whether it's, it's, uh, you know, in terms of actual on the field mechanical adjustments or, or whether it's terms of uh, making them understand the things they need to do to get better. And and certainly the Orioles have someone like that.
0: So Machado is somewhat notable for Alex Rodriguez being his favorite baseball player. And he's trained with Alex Rodriguez in the offseason. And then he's engaged to be married, as, as we were saying earlier, to Yonder Alonso's sister. So I sometimes like to imagine uh, Machado having a devil and an angel on his shoulders, <laughs> and the devil is Alex Rodriguez, and the angel is Yonder Alonso. And, uh, <laughs> oh, God. So he's got, you know. That's a, that's a good image. <laughs> that's our best case scenario, huh? Yonder Alonso. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's great, because he's got, he's got A-Rod saying to him, like, not only are you as good as everyone says you are, you're better, and it's America's fault if you try to give them what they want you to be. And then he's got Yonder Alonso on the other shoulder saying, you know, you can make a good living hitting 211.
2: (laughs) Yeah, take care of my sister, bro. Take
0: care of my sister. All right, Ted. Well, thank you very, very much for joining us. It's been fantastic having you on. Everybody should check out Ted on Twitter. He's at OGTedberg. We'll put up a link to that on our website, uh, BMorons.com. And look for Ted's articles on USA Today. Ted, thanks a lot, man.
2: No, I had fun. Thanks for having me.
1: You're listening to Baltimoreans,
0: the home of the all-weather fan.
1: My name is Alan Smith,
0: and this over here is Sam Dingman. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Baltimoreans Culture Corner, the segment that so very few of you have told us is your favorite thing we've ever done. <laughs> Never ones to disappoint. Once again, we bring you our reviews of some of the most exciting baseball books to have been published recently. <laughs> In this tense psychological thriller with spiritual overtones, Mariner's GM Jack Zdurianchik, finding himself on his last legs professionally, convinces himself that his career can be saved if he can somehow lure a power-hitting second baseman in his prime to the Emerald City. Betimes he is approached by a shadowy hip-hop mogul who convinces him that he can provide just such a player, but only if Jack agrees to a lifetime pact. Jack goes home to his wife and daughters, with whom he passes an anxious supper of roast quail and bamboo shoots. That night, he tosses and turns, grappling with the existential philosophical quandaries of a lifetime contract with a man whose motivations he suspects are less than pure, but which seems to be the only way to keep his family in roast quail and bamboo shoots. When the signing of Robinson Cano is announced, Jack breathes a cautious sigh of relief But the roast quail and bamboo shoots soon turn to ash in his mouth once the season begins, and he watches as Cano not only fails to hit any home runs of his own, but appears to sap the strength of those around him as well. Years later, Seattle has transformed into a wasteland, bereft of slugging percentage, where free agents fear to tread and even the most promising prospects wither and die on the vines. As Safeco Field falls into increasing disrepair and is overrun by bizarrely aggressive beavers, Jack is left to wander the halls, watching as each of his players ages prematurely before his eyes. Except for Canoe, whose flippant attitude and lack of hustle seem to perpetuate his youth. Available wherever books are sold, critics agree that Canoe Country for Old Men is a psychological thriller not to be missed.
1: Leon Hart, a young man in Cambridge, Massachusetts, has grown up as a huge Red Sox fan. When, at the age of 12, his parents' tumultuous relationship finally comes to an end, Leon retreats further and further into the world of baseball, often holding long imaginary conversations with his favorite player, Wade Boggs. When Boggs is traded to the hated New York Yankees, it's too much for young Leon to handle, and he embarks on an epic coming-of-age quest to New York City, where he hopes to convince his hero to return and thus set life back on a course that he understands. Along the way, Leon encounters a host of life-changing characters, including a juggling toll booth operator, a singing bullfrog, and A.J. Burnett. Each of them gives him advice, which ultimately does more to fill the hole left by the rupture of his family and Boggs' departure than he ever thought possible. Finally, it's 2 a.m. in Penn Station, and Leon is waiting in line to board a train back to Beantown, when at last he spies the wraith-like form of Wade Boggs himself, seeming empty and defeated, dejectedly combing his trademark mustache as he awaits a train of his own. In that moment, he suddenly sees Boggs for what he's become— an aging slap hitter chasing an outsized payday for skills he no longer possesses. What's more, Leon finds that the hole in his heart that Boggs once occupied has now been filled with the wisdom of the juggling tollbooth collector, whose words echo in Leon's ears. Sometimes you spend so much of your life juggling, you forget that it's okay to drop something every once in a while. Join Leon for his journey of self-discovery in... The Curious Incident of the Bogs in the Nighttime.
0: Through a series of rich flashbacks, we learn the story of a journeyman catcher's complex relationship with three very different teams. Possessed of only one relatively meager tool, but the drive and determination to persevere even when the prevailing winds of the universe seem to blow irrefutably towards retirement he somehow carves out a surprisingly relevant career in an era when catchers did not yet have the independence they enjoy today. His initial contract, signed at the tender age of 23 with the Arizona Diamondbacks, is one of financial expediency, but lacking in true love or significant playing time. His second contract with the Texas Rangers seems promising at first, but he eventually finds himself traded from team to team who want him to do little more than play the role of catcher and refuse to appreciate the man behind the mask. Finally, though, with his financial future secured, the catcher goes looking for true love and seems, initially, to find it in the arms of the 2012 Pittsburgh Pirates, a gritty band of drifters and upstarts who seem, for a fleeting moment, poised to capture the pennant. Ultimately, however, they're no match for the rabid dogs of the NL Central, and the catcher watches as his dreams collapse yet again. One makes unlikely friends in a career as long and winding as his, however, and in the end, the league he presumed hell-bent on forsaking him for so long offers him a consolation prize, and he accepts a job as a manager in the Arizona Fall League. A gripping story of tragedy, redemption, and well-framed breaking balls. Don't miss Their Eyes Were Watching Rod Barajas. Sam? I, I feel like yogurt over here. <laughs> I feel live. I feel active. I want to go read a book. Yeah,
1: yeah. All, all three of those were uh, sure to be on the New York Times bestseller list coming soon.
0: Sure as we can be, at least.
1: <laughs> Which, you know, I did bet... $200 on the U.S. to win the World Cup. So that's pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> you got money on the Orioles for the World Series too, right? I do. I do. Well, that is all the time we have uh, for this week's show. But we did want to give a hearty thank you for those of you who tuned in last Friday to hear us stumble, tumble, and bumble through another live call of the Orioles' ball game. It was a ton of fun. Uh, and we, we really enjoyed ourselves. And we want to especially thank the people who are joining us over the Twitters, and keeping things lively and exciting and hilarious.
0: Yes, and in particular, we would like to thank our most valuable tweeter. For uh, the first game, our most valuable tweeter was Godzilla, And for game two of the 2014 Baltimore Ons Call Several Baseball Games series, at <laughs> Seductive Tommy H was crowned the most valuable tweeter. Now, not only does did at seductive Tommy H do a great job of tweeting during the game that we called, but he's pretty much been bringing the A game to the Twitter sphere since jump. So this this uh, award for him is as much a recognition of past performance as it is a recognition of his work during the ball game. It was both a
1: big game and the Lifetime Achievement Award. We can say
0: exactly. It's kind of like Derek Jeter playing in the All Star Game this year. Okay, except that. At Seductive Tommy H. wasn't hitting the equivalent of 260 with very little power during the game. No, no,
1: I don't like that analogy. I think it's more like um, Helen Mirren getting the Oscar
0: for the Queen movie. I like it. I like it. So, congratulations, At Seductive Tommy H. (laughs) Your shirt is in the mail. And by the way, did I just say shirt? Oh, that's because we have Baltimore on shirts that we give away ...to the most valuable tweeter whenever we do a live broadcast... ...which we'll be doing another one of very soon. So keep an eye on our Twitter handle, at BeMorons... ...which is where we'll be announcing it the next time we do it. And really seriously, thank you very much to all of you... ...who hung out with us uh, and listened to the game. It was an incredibly fun experience for Alan and I... ...and it was particularly fun because we felt like we were sharing it with all of you guys.
1: We also got to vamp through a rain delay, which uh, was exciting... And maybe not the smoothest thing we've ever done, but I actually enjoyed it as one of the highlights of the evening. And it reminded us that any time that you Baltimoreans want to ask us a question, you should do that. You should at be morons us, or you should write us an email at Podcast at gmail.com and ask us those questions. Uh, we would love to field whatever ridiculousness you happen to have percolating in your brain and see if we can't turn it into a little bit of something that makes everybody laugh.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, the music on the program this evening included uh, our theme song, which is by Marshall York. It included the song Birdland by Weather Report, the song Working for Another Song by Town Hall. The song Sample in a Jar by Fish, here on the outro, it is Kicking My Heart Around by the Black Crows.
1: And if you listened during the particular live broadcast, uh, you also heard the delightful, delightful pickin' of one Dean Eastlake, who uh, rocks the banjo in a way that I really, I didn't understand or fully appreciate. Um, we're trying to put some pressure on Dean to write us an intro to our Baltimoreans. Uh, episodes, so Dean, if you're listening, could you get
0: on that? <laughs> if you're on Twitter, you should tweet Dean Eastlake and tell him that he should write a new Baltimoreans intro on his banjo. Or
1: you could just tweet at Oriole Spastics that also get to Dean.
0: Yeah, Charlie, his, Dean's assistant Charlie will uh, get that right <laughs> over to him. <laughs>
1: Uh, but this is our moment to mention before we before we let you all go, that we are, of course, proud members of the Baltimore Sports Support Network, and many of our fine Sister Wife podcasts. Go over there, check it out, com slash networks.
0: Before I forget, thank you very much to Nick Markovich and Jen Adams, with whom I attended a very enjoyable Mets game over the weekend and brainstormed most of the Taylor Teagarden <laughs> pop songs that you heard. In the intro to this show, so thank you very much to them. Oh, uh, Alan! Before we go, I, I had a question for you. Shoot, um, what does Henry Erudia think of the Holly Smoot? I don't know. He thinks it's terrific. I don't understand. No, there's there's nothing to understand. <laughs> Stop kicking my heart.